Welcome to Birds Breakdown. I'm your host, Tyler Jackson, joined by our special co-host today, Benjamin Solak. Johnny couldn't be with us today. He is uh, he's on vacation. He is in Rome. So when in Rome, uh, if you need an answer to that question, ask Johnny. You can tweet him on Twitter <laughs> at, at JohnnyPage9. He'll, he'll have an answer for you on that. But Ben, how are you doing today? Oh, Always well, my man. Thanks for asking, Tyler. Glad to be back with you. Absolutely. It's uh, it's always great to have you because you, you bring great insight, whether that's about the Eagles or just film in general or even about the NFL draft because uh, I saw that you actually filled in for uh, somebody, I think it was at NDT Scouting for a podcast. What was it? Football guys? Not football guys, but... Um, yeah, yeah, no. So NDT Scouting has their podcast, The Draft Dudes. Uh, usually Kyle Krabs and Joe Marino are the hosts. I work at NDT Scouting. I'm a national scout there. Joe couldn't do it. He was watching his bills get beat up by the Jets on Thursday night, which is not a fun thing to do, I would imagine. So I was covering for him, which was a good time. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's interesting because I actually listened to your guys' podcast. Uh, Ben's the host of the Birds Breakdown podcast along with Michael Kist. So I was listening to the uh, the JHIE, and he actually brought some good info and tidbits on it. So make sure you go ahead and subscribe and listen to that podcast. It's Locked on Eagles, great if you commute to work, just a, a nice daily 20 to 25, 30 minute podcast. Uh, really, it, it's really good, you know, a really great resource. You guys are doing a great job over there. But yeah, Thanks, um, yeah, make sure to follow Ben on Twitter. He is at Benjamin Solak, that's S-O-L-A-K. And we'll go ahead and get into the show. As usual, we'll go ahead and uh, review the offense and then talk about the defense and some of the things that the 49ers did that worked against the Eagles this past weekend. And then talk about the Broncos and what kind of challenge they face on defense. But I want to start with Carson Wentz because this uh, this wasn't really his best game so far. And I, I think some of that had to do with the pre- with the pressure. And uh, I actually talked about this on Twitter. There's um, you know, we could chart stats. Like I think I saw somewhere that Wentz was three of the nine against the blitz or against pressure or something like that. But a lot of that also deals with the fact that you know. It, if you have pressure, you have to have somewhere to go with the ball. Like it's not just cut clear and dry. And and often, as soon as Wentz was hitting the top of his drop, there was a man in his face. There was somebody right off the edge to where he'd have to step into the pocket, and where he had to step up, there was another man already right there. So the Forty ers did a really good job of attacking the offensive line with um, different twists and stunts and blitz. And sometimes it seemed like they were actually timing the snap count pretty well, or uh, I guess getting off the ball as soon as the play clock. Uh, hit one or zero so it was actually uh it was a really good job by the 49ers offensive line to kind of get him off his groove and even then he uncharacteristically for this year at least he was missing throws that he routinely hits like uh the Alshon Jeffrey touchdown uh well the one that he missed when they settled for a field goal with Solomon Thomas Solomon Thomas in his face yeah Thomas was in his face but you still have to make that throw one way or another you're going to get waxed at the end so you know make it count so he missed Jeffrey there. There was another one where he missed uh, Brent Sellup crossing across the middle of the field uh, deeper. Then there was the uh, that uh, bootleg to his left side where he missed Ertz, just threw the ball behind him. It was still a catchable ball, but he eliminated any chance for Ertz to get uh, yards after the catch or lead him upfield into more green or anything like that. That And there was another uh, sort of uh, like a wheel route that Ertz ran where he just kind of uh, went up the sideline and Wentz had a... A honey hole to hit him in, and he just let him out of bounds with it. So that, and even the all Sean Jeffrey touchdown itself, that ball was underthrown. Like uh, Jeffrey had his uh, had his man beat, and Wentz could just let him further downfield. Now whether or not that would have been a touchdown, I'm not sure, but he he underthrew the ball, and Jeffrey just made a really good adjustment to it. But it just not Wentz's best game. But what did you see that really wasn't working for him there? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. It wasn't Wentz's best game. And I and I talked a little bit about this on Locked on Eagles when we were discussing on the pod, that he was going to come back to earth some point. That three-game stretch that he had before the uh, the San Fran game, you know, the, the Carolina game, the Washington game, the Cardinals game, uh, that was the best football he played in his young career. And while it would have been awesome if he continued to play at that level, it would have been a little bit too much to ask for such a young player to kind of just carry his team like that. And after you have, you know, two primetime games, two very high intensity, you know, in the conference games against guys who you might see again in the playoffs, you know, a divisional team. And then you're on a short week coming off Monday night against the Redskins, playing a really poor team at home, you know, in a game that you should win pretty easily, plus inclement weather. It felt like a little bit of a letdown spot just 
in the sense of, of of a pure performance level. Obviously, the Eagles still win thirty three to ten. You know, it wasn't so much a letdown uh, in the in the scoreboard, but a little bit of a letdown just in the way that Carson played. Yeah, the Forty ers came out really with a fantastic uh, game plan in the sense that they they pulled a lot of stuff that we hadn't seen from them before. Simply, you know, their uh, their offense was painfully white bread and and had no teeth whatsoever with cj bethard at the helm you know against that eagle defense they could not just consistently generate yardage there was no way bethard could move the ball in the air whatsoever almost all their offense came either running the football or bethard scrambling it on what should have been a pass play right so they kind of really came in you know if they were going to cause us problems if they were going to you know if they were going to hang around for the majority of the game it was going to be through the performance of that defense and with uh, Robert Sala the the defensive coordinator usually a very strict kind of a 4-3 guy you know that that Seattle style of offense with the, with the cover three over the top and here's four rushers and this is how we do it really worked in a lot more uh, defensive line games stunts and twists than than I had seen from the San Fran tape in my preparation at all and you could see it caught Philadelphia by surprise and you wonder if coming in San Fran said hey we uh we saw in the Eagles tape for the first seven weeks of the season that they struggled to handle games up front so let's just run a bunch of them right that uh that Alshon Jeffrey missed touchdown to which you alluded fantastic example you know they ran a three-man game it was only a three-man rush but they brought both ends twisting to the opposite sides of the nose tackle I've never seen that before I don't know what to call that. You know what I mean? That's not that's not an end to end. So that's that's absurdity, right? You had the left end coming over to the left guard, or right end going all the way over to the left guard. Nose tackle still up the middle. Jason Kelsey released the the nose tackle because he had people to handle coming across his face. Nose tackle goes and gets that interior pressure right away, right? And so you've seen now the Eagles struggle to handle these games, and that kind of had Carson. At a poor start to begin with, he was constantly under pressure. The Eagles had to adjust the offense kind of end of that second half when the Eagles finally got a touchdown drive. You saw that the ball was just coming out quickly, quickly. That mesh concept to uh, Terry to, to Burton, a little skinny post to, to Matt Collins. We weren't running so many full field reads anymore. We weren't running so many progressions anymore. It was right pre-snap. It looks like this. If it's there, I'm going to hit it. If not, I'm taking the check down. Boom. You know, taking away some of the decision making that Carson Wentz has been able to handle in his second year and just making the offense a little bit more snappy, really reminiscent of what worked for us last year. You know, when 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 uh, Wentz was kind of criticized for his air yards and, you know, the offense was was criticized as, as plain and simple. That's kind of what we went back to just to make things easier for the young quarterback and easier on a struggling offensive line. That's where we started to generate, you know, some movement with the football. And then once we had a big lead, you know, kind of jumping out of that 16, uh, that 17 point lead, excuse me, to finish the end the half well then it became you know just ball control for that second half so yeah it wasn't the offense's best performance you know they they had to riddle out what san francisco was doing to find a solution but once they did smooth sailing from then on out yeah absolutely so uh, like you said he, he was kind of due for one and i think the impressive thing is that the eagles were able to win in the fashion that they were even with him having i guess a quote-unquote bad game I think ultimately this is something that's going to have to change with him with Big V. He's going to have to realize when to get the ball out quicker because he took a sack in this game where I honestly I thought it was a little bit more on him just kind of taking his time uh, reading the entire field and it really he's not going to get that kind of time with Big V out there. And it's the same thing again with that Panther strip sack on that first drive of that game. He uh, really he double pumped, and you can't. You're not going to have that sort of time with Big V out there. So it's one thing that he's going to have to adjust to, and I hope it doesn't lead to him seeing ghosts, and I guess kind of screw with his internal clock in that factor. But it's one thing that it's going to be an adjustment period, and he needs to make sure to keep it safe because one thing he's been prone to are the uh, fumbling issues, whether he gets them back or not, which it seems like more often than not he does. That's still an issue because it, it's you lose a down and it sets the offense back and knocks them off schedule, and it's uh, for what Doug Peterson does with the West Coast offense. It, it's really not good. And I know they've had a lot of success converting on longer downs this year, but it's not something that you want to continue the, a trend. Well, you, right. you want to continue converting on them, but you don't want to be you don't want to be stuck in those situations because then it yeah. just becomes miserable and you get tee off on your quarterback and. He's already seen it so far this year that you want to keep these guys healthy because of what's going on around the NFL. But, uh, yeah, that's my thing with Carson Wentz. Now, actually, I want to move on to the wide receivers real quick because um, we got our little Alshon Jeffrey spiel. Now, I know that you uh, you don't really don't see wide receiver one place from him. Now, I think that they're there to be had. Like, they're, Wentz missing for a touchdown 
this past weekend. Then there was the one against the Giants game where he just missed them deep. And he uh, he drew the pass interference in the Giants game, too, at the one-yard line on Eli Apple. So that, that's hypothetically three touchdowns right there off the board. But I, I do understand what you're saying, and I think a lot of the issue with Alshon just watching him, we, we knew this coming in. He wasn't a very nuanced route runner. And I think for this uh, for this offense that kind of has a lot of in-breaking routes, like they they run a, they want to run him on that dagger concept a lot. But he just really doesn't have the, uh, I guess, the quick change and uh, really the athletic ability to kind of consistently run those in-breaking routes. Now, I don't know if it's something he had like before he started suffering injuries later last year. But uh, really, it's uh, I think that's one thing that kind of limits him in this offense because he be in that point, he becomes more of a vertical threat, like more of a straight line. We've seen him get separation deeper up the seams. When he has to break in, that kind of hurts him. Like I, I can't recall off the top of my head any uh, any routes that he's had success on or any big plays that he's had success on where there's been a quick break on the route. The, the only one I could think of is that one against Patrick Peterson. That's because he absolutely smoked them off the line. And then there was the uh, the corner route against the Giants, but they were playing a zone, and he was uh, he was free on the break to the corner. So really, that, I think that's the issue here is that he's kind of limited to a uh, to a vertical threat, like a further downfield. Like you can't really use him on those sharper cutting routes. No, I agree with hundred percent. To your point on touchdowns, that's one of the big. Uh points of this debate and it's one you know on which like I feel very strongly because if Alshon had caught three more touchdowns this season my opinion on him wouldn't have changed because touchdowns are uh, in my opinion you know when I use them quite a misnomer stat because they are such the product of uh opportunity they are such you know like such the product of you know you you have uh, well, like a 65 yard bomb to Torrey Smith he gets tackled at the one Alshon Jeffrey catches the touchdown you know who made the more valuable play is kind of like you know touchdowns is it's just kind of where you are on the field and and oh yeah Alshon's got a good skill set for that but you know him being featured in the red zone well you know the way the Eagles have other weapons you know Aguilar who's such an excellent separator uh, Zach Ertz is still so dangerous in the red zone let's not forget that you know LeGarrette Blunt has does not have a rushing touchdown for the Eagles yet this year but, you know, like it's not like people are saying like, oh, you know, Blunt could be so much more, but he, uh, you know, he doesn't have touchdowns, but he could have had this if they decided to run the ball. You know, it comes down to play calling in the red zone. And so it's tough for me to say like, oh, if he had more touchdowns, my opinion on him would change, you know, because there's such a product of opportunity. I agree absolutely with your point on Jeffrey struggles to break in the sense that, you know, just as a long, high cut, you know, just just more of a, a physical force than he is a dynamic athlete. Jeffrey's primary mode of separation is what some might call offensive pass interference, but simply just being physical, right? He's kind of one of these open when he's not open sort of guys where, you know, if if he's at a point where it's 50-50, like the, uh, the touchdown against San Francisco, if he's at a point where, you know, like he has a step or like, you know, he's he's a little bit uncovered, just chuck it up to him. You know, if he's covered, if he's covered, he's uncovered because he can go up and get that football. Or uh, with the Patrick Peterson touchdown, you're some, or not touchdown, but catch, you're trying to find a way to get him to release off the line, get him into a quick slant off of off coverage, something to manufacture by alignment, by scheme, by route design, separation, because he can't really achieve it himself, right? And so when when we talk about Jeffrey as, you know, he is a wide receiver one, okay, like, you know, we, we can have that debate whatsoever. Uh you know, the, to the extent to which he draws shadow coverage, you know, some folks say, oh, he's so valuable to this offense because he draws all this coverage. Well, he's not really drawn that much, you know, double coverage or, you know, Patrick Peterson tracked him across the field for like 70 some percent of the snaps. Casey Hayward did it for about 70 some percent of the snaps with Los Angeles Chargers. Besides that, he hasn't been tracked across the field. So it's happened in, in two games out of eight so far this year. And so, you know, what, to the extent to which he draws double coverage or he has gravity that draws in a defense, I don't know. We can debate that, whatever. My biggest point is maybe Alshon is a wide receiver one. Fantastic. But looking at this from an economical perspective, is he worth the contract that he'll likely demand from Philadelphia to do the limited things that he does? In my opinion, I think you can find a similar effect and find similar production cheaper simply because, you know, to your point, like the Eagles might try to uncover him on dagger concepts, but it doesn't work terribly well. Now, throwing a guy like Mac Hollins, who we've seen make about 
five catches all across the middle of the field, 15 yards deep, all for first downs. Okay, I can get that sort of production from Mac Hollins. You know what I mean? And so my question is, all right, Alshon, you know, cool, but am I willing to pay this guy? You know, as of right now, he's technically on, I think it's about a $9 million deal with incentives to go up to like 12 and a half or something like that. And he's probably not going to hit a lot of those incentives, but you're going to struggle to to get Alshon on a deal multi-year where he's taking an annual salary less than 10 million, in my opinion. And 10 million, I'd still have the conversation of keeping him. But once we start to move into that 11 and 12 million range, I, you know, Looking at the way that this season has gone, I don't think the Eagles' offense would be markedly worse with like a Kenny Stills in that place. I even want to say with Terrell Pryor, but Terrell Pryor, you know, dealing with injury and dealing with a rough Washington offense has also struggled. So it's kind of tough to get a, a bead there. And then obviously, you know, Stills isn't having the greatest time with Jay Cutler in Miami, for God's sakes. But what Alshon brings to this offense isn't the maximum of his potential, number one, nor is it worth the money that he'll demand because of his potential. So it's a question of a law of diminishing returns. Is he valuable enough in this in this offense? I don't think that he is. That actually brings me to my next question. What's the most that you'd be willing to pay per year to keep Alshon around? Right, it's tricky. I uh, The Eagles are at a very interesting place with their cap because they're the only team in the NFL that does not have a player that's demanding at least, I want to say, 7% of the cap. I'm pretty sure Lane Johnson is their, demands the most cap money this year. It's like 6.8%. They're the only team in the NFL that doesn't have a player over 7 And they've got... You know, a shocking amount of youth on this roster. Really amazing. And it, and it's something that I hope to break down on Bleeding Green Nation uh, over the bye week is how young this Eagle roster is and how, how positive that is. So giving a contract to Alshon Jeffrey is such a tricky situation because – what with you know the addition of Jay Ajayi now, the Eagles are looking at a draft where they probably have a big needed offensive tackle. And then besides that, you're really looking at, okay, we, we should acquire some more linebacker depth, certainly. Uh, you know, offensive line depth would help as well. We've already seen that we're kind of in need of that. But besides that, you know, okay, maybe you're losing, you know, Trey Burton and Brent Selleck this offseason, depending on if you're making cuts, you know, maybe you want to bring in a third tight end. Really, there's no big need besides offensive tackle. And so you wonder if the Eagles feel as if they can bring in, uh, you know, get get another guy around that Mac Hollins time, round four, and bring him in and have an exceedingly young wide receiver core and not have to worry about that cap situation. You wonder if they think they can do that. So you got to add into that, you know, the second part of that discussion is the Eagles have limited cap space to re-sign three big players in Timmy Jernigan, Nigel Bradham and Alshon Jeffrey. Those are the big three you're looking at right there. All three of them are going to be in contract years, and you would have a very difficult time convincing Alshon is even second on that list as far as priorities. I think Timmy Jarnigan is the unquestionable first. I think the way that he is, his addition has really escalated the play of this front seven to a point where it is one of the most dangerous units in the NFL. When Fletcher Cox was out, Timmy Jarnigan saved our bacon for those two weeks. Then Nigel Bradham's been playing his head off and you got Alshon Jeffrey now, wide receiver more valuable than linebacker. That's tricky, but I would put Alshon third on that list. So it's it's it depends on a lot of factors. I think that ten million per year over three years would be a point where that'd be kind of my ceiling. That'd be where I'd be a little bit comfortable if he wants to stay for more years. Which you know, if the Eagles feel like a real Super Bowl contender, he may. Then you might be able to get that number down if you go four or five years. But I'd be wary of giving him a contract of that length because, as we've seen, he doesn't really have the athletic ability to consistently separate. And so as he gets older, that's only going to get worse. And I think that he's just going to kind of become relegated to a to a jump ball player. I don't really see him persisting well into his 30s, his style of play. You know what I mean? So, so $10 million over three years – you know, ten million annually, three year contract. That's where my gut is right now. But that number is so dependent on so many different things regarding, you know, other contracts they have to sign, what they think they're gonna be doing with draft capital. And not to mention, you know, Eagles win a Super Bowl, you know, knock on wood. Alshon might want to leave. You know, that's what happens after you win a Super Bowl. Some of your talent goes elsewhere because they feel like they can go help other competitors. You know, so there's a lot. There's a lot going on there. Yeah, absolutely, I agree with that. And uh, like, uh, I'm I'm kind of surprised that he's bought in as well as what he has. I know winning solves a lot of things, but you know, if if you feel like you're number one wide receiver and you're playing on kind of like a one year deal, like a prove it thing, you probably want a little bit more production. But yeah, I'm I'm very happy with how he's handled the situation. 
But I agree with you. Like Tim Jernigan's far and away the number one priority for this team. Now I think they're sitting at around ten million or something like that in cap space that they're going to be able to roll over, or eight million, nine million, something somewhere around that figure. But I, I somebody mentioned they could do some restructuring and um, some releasing and move some things around. They could potentially get to thirty, thirty-five million. But you know, one thing like you mentioned, we have younger players. Jordan Hicks, that's a guy that's going to need an extension soon. Um, you know, Ronald Darby's going to be coming up for an extension. Jay Ajayi, if he's in their future plans, uh, depending on how the needs works out. Now, obviously, you're, you're going to get a year or two to kind of sit on that if he doesn't hold out. So you have the opportunity to kind of sit there and lean on those things. And I, I'm trying to think if there's anybody else that might be up or uh, due for an extension of any sort. I, I don't think that there is off the top of my head. Nelson Aguilar, if you want to bring him back, that's... Uh, that's a whole other situation, it's, and that's going to be very interesting to watch going forward. But yeah. they, they have a lot of young players on this roster that are probably going to be deserving money more than what Alshon is. My my fear, though, is, uh, okay, so hypothetically, your, your receivers next year, your starting X receiver on the outside is probably Matt Collins. If Alshon Jeffrey and Torrey Smith are gone, it's Matt Collins. You have Matt Collins, Zach Ertz, maybe Nelson Aguilar in the slot. You know how comfortable do I feel with that uh, with that wide receiver, you know, set out there with uh, with Carson Wentz? Now it's going to be coming back down to earth a little bit, but that's one thing you have to evaluate as well. And, you know, you don't want to go back to something like Doriel Green Beckham and Jordan Matthews and guys like that. But I would like to see Matt Collins sprinkled in more consistently. Maybe get him about three or five targets a game, just so we can feel comfortable about that. If that's a situation that they have to that they're going to go with next year after um, if Alshon's not here. So that's one thing that's big for me. But yeah. um, really, anything else from the offense, uh, from the 49ers game that I, could think, I can't think of, uh, just the offensive line, we kind of hit on them. It's uh, I think one thing with twists and stunts, twists and stunts are hard for uh, offensive lines in general to deal with just because it requires so much communication. Like I, Even the Cowboys have struggled with it. Um, so obviously if you're going to plug some guys in, now I know these guys have played with each other, but I've always been told the offensive line continuity is so important and it's so hard to replace those guys because they trust each other. And, and communication really is key when you're there in the trenches and getting everything across. So I think that twists and stunts are going to be a bit of an issue for them. Um, do you have anything else on the offensive side of the ball? Yeah, I agree 100%. Only last thing I would say is that Really, the vanishing act of Wendell Smallwood is is indicting at this point, and 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 I've been vocal, you know, on Locked On Eagles saying you have to if 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 Wendell Smallwood is potentially in your plans moving forward because this running back room is going to reshuffle. Obviously, this year you've got Legarrette Blunt and Darren Sproles all in contract years moving forward. If you're you know if you if Wendell Smallwood's part of your long term plans, you have to have a couple games where you give him a long series of touches to see what you have from him, right? You have to like get him into a rhythm over a game and and see how he can produce if he's in your long term plans. This was a perfect opportunity for that. A San Francisco game, you know, a much worse team at home in the rain, and Smallwood got one touch on the ground and one touch through the air. When it came to fourth of uh, you know fourth quarter running the clock down, they went with Corey Clement, and you could say, oh, you know, they're trying to protect. Smallwood, they don't want to injure him in garbage time. I'm not buying it. Uh, I, this, you know, this team seems to be moving on from Smallwood. Uh, he has not provided them with the juice that they had hoped. Is kind of more of a lightning style back, a change of pace guy, a guy who can be explosive and get to the second level. We just haven't seen it. I don't know the extent to which they're going to be committed to him moving forward. You know, you you could see potentially next year, you know, a running back room with with Jay Ajayi. Who knows if they'll try to re-sign Sproles after his injury? Corey Clement, Danell Pumphrey, and then maybe you know a fourth as well you know keep Kenyon Barner to return or something like that but uh, I, I'm they don't seem invested in, in Smallwood at all yeah I mean, I mean you could see it like you said they fourth quarter time it was Clement so that's interesting because um for me whenever Smallwood's in there to carry the ball it, it's just uh you, know, you kind of hope everything is blocked right for him and right in front of him because he's not going to make these awesome plays or these cutbacks or anything like that like if it's not there then he's going to run straight into whatever isn't there. And if, if it's there, he's just going to keep running straight. Like His vision really isn't that good. And I think Johnny's actually mentioned a couple times where Wendell Smallwood does a really good job of headbutting offensive linemen and defensive linemen whenever yeah. he gets the ball. So, yeah, to me, it's it's kind of like uh, I talk about this. I'm like, you know, every uh, 
every play to a certain player around the league is like when Alfred Morris would get the ball uh, for the Cowboys, I would be like, well, I guess that's a uh, that's a waste of a down there. It's that's what it seems like for Wendell Smallwood for the most point. Whenever you hand the ball, it's just a, a waste of a down or anything. So yeah, I, I'm out on Smallwood. Of course, I was never really high on him coming in. I saw a lot of him at West Virginia. I thought that he was kind of more so one of those guys that you'd sprinkle in and. I thought he was better as a receiver, to be honest, but that's uh, that's where we're at with him. But I uh, that, that's all I have on the offense. Moving on to the defense, I once again, I thought they played extremely well. They kept the uh, Eagles in the game. They even scored a couple times. The only thing um, I'm interested in right now, obviously the linebackers are uh, are a bit of a, uh, a question mark with Joe Walker and whenever they're sprinkling in um, Najee Good. But they, 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 do, they do a lot of nickel. Defensive line looks good up front. Uh, the cornerbacks, I'm starting to have more faith in them, which is weird. It's like you, you can count on them to make plays. Like uh, There was one play that Rosal Douglas made deep down the field this past mm-hmm. week. I was like, you know, if that's any other cornerback, that's not a breakup. He has the length and he has the size to, to make those plays like that. So that's, uh, that's pretty interesting. I know you're big on Rosal's brand. I, I like yeah. Rosal a lot. Now, we talked about this last time you were on the podcast about whether or not we thought Rosal Douglas should be the starter on the outside. I thought so, too. I, I don't think the coaching staff is going to go that way whenever Darby does come back. I think it's going to be Mills just because, you know, it, You've heard all the cliches. I like him. He's aggressive. That mentality, all of that. He kind of fits all those bills, and really, he's probably playing at at a better. Uh, he's probably playing better ball than what he's ever played in his career. Now, it's not saying he's great or anything like that, but he's playing with more confidence, and that's what this coaching staff's gonna like. So, the thing for me, I really don't want to see Rosal go back to the bench. Like, I hope that he still gets to see a lot of snaps whenever. Darby does come back because I I really like what he's what he's shown on the outside and it's been promising. Yeah, no, it's it's very tricky. And there was a there was a window there where I started to believe Tyler because Patrick Robinson went out with that concussion and I said here's what'll happen next week Darby comes in so you got you got Douglas you got Mills and you got Darby who's going to cover the nickel because Robinson's out with this concussion Jalen Mills is the obvious answer there so Mills goes to the nickel and then Douglas stays outside and he continues to play amazing and he stays there forever of course Patrick Robinson immediately cleared the concussion protocol so that's not going to happen and obviously we're happy about that we didn't want him to stay with the concussion but that window is closing for Douglas and it's in I've kind of been writing a bleeding green saying you know I think Douglas has to understand that his reps on the outside are limited and that he you know has to make plays while he's out there now to put it out there for the coaching staff that he can and he's done that you know every single game that he's been out there he's made at least you know one play where it's a pass breakup or it's an interception where he's highlighted his instincts his closing ability his length and yeah I'm so excited about him it's really really interesting to see what will happen with this Eagles corner room moving forward the nice thing is and i remember tweeting this out at the derby trade for the first time in 10 years since 2006 in namdi the eagles do not have an issue in the cornerback room if they do it's a surplus of talent that has not been a thing for the past decade right and so moving forward patrick robinson on a one-year deal playing very well will they keep him with the guys that they have well, i don't know you know that's a very very crowded quarter room you don't necessarily have to you know, and, and moving forward, if, if Robinson's not part of the plan, well, you've got Jones, Darby, uh, Douglas, and Mills. Assuming the four of them are healthy, it's a very unique situation. I think that you'll, you won't see Douglas in unless it's four corner sets, unless it's dime. But if he is in, you'll see him on the boundary. He can't play the slot. He's just not quick enough. They'll likely move Sidney Jones and Jalen Mills into the slot, leaving Darby and Douglas on the outside if that's the plan moving forward. If Patrick Robinson stays, whew, that you got a lot of pieces who can play a lot of different ways. But, yeah, it's amazing how well the Eagles' corners, Mills and Douglas, have acquitted themselves during this time of significant injury. And Patrick Robinson deserves to be in there as well. He's seen reps on both the outside and the, and the boundary, as well, uh, the outside and the slot as well. That being said, man, it's very exciting to have the prospect of Ronald Darby coming back. He's a game-time decision this week. I think that, you know, I definitely think he'll suit up, is my thought. I think he'll suit up. He may not see starting reps. He may just be a depth guy, and then if there's injuries, he can play. But I think against this Denver team, where this is, I think this will be one of the closest games the Eagles play. Obviously, that that um, that Carolina game ended within five, but it kind of you know the Eagles were pretty solidly in control of that game, and then Carolina just had a late surge. Um, 
I think this will be one of the closer games the Eagles play. I think that this has the potential to become a, a kind of a, a slugfest, you know, field goal here, field goal there. If the Eagle offense struggles against this Denver D. And so you might want to have a guy like Darby in your back pocket in the event that things get tight. Have confidence in that Brock train. <laughs> but yeah, I, really, it's it, it's really nice to have the surplus of cornerback talent. Because like you said, death, whenever these guys get hurt, you have the death to kind of throw guys in there that you can trust to make plays and you don't lose a drop-off that. And, I mean, they're really surrounded with good talent everywhere else. Up front, they're one of the better units in the league. The safety tandem is one of the best safety tandems in the league. They're really reliable. They're really good. So it's uh, – they're really – they're set up to succeed on defense the way that everything is there. But, um, yeah, that, that's really all I have for the 49ers game. It's, it's been encouraging what we've seen so far. And it's nice to know that those units can pick each other up whenever one's having a – an off day or a down day. And that's really what we saw against the San Francisco 49ers. Like, I don't know if you saw the Doug Peterson um, FX things where they did, uh, they had the camera and they had him mic'd up on the sideline. It was pretty good. He, uh, he had some choice words for the offense and I've seen the video floating around on Twitter. So make sure to check that out. It's the Doug Peterson FX. It's, it, it's, it's a good little watch there, but I actually want to talk about the JHIA trade real quick before we talk about, uh, Denver and what challenges they present. Now I know you've got to watch Jay a lot more than what I have, and you've talked to people that have watched him more than I have. What I've seen from him, uh, he uh, they talk about him being a home run threat. I think a lot of what his issues were were the offensive line. You know, I went through and I watched that Jets game where he carried for like twenty five times or something like that for fifty one yards. And it's hard to go anywhere when you're getting tackled and met in the backfield on every play and there's nothing opening up. They do run a lot of zone concepts, which I thought was interesting. And uh, so that's that's something to monitor going forward because uh, you know, people assume power backs that you always run like power running plays, but that's not entirely true. Look, I, I remember watching Marshawn Lynch in Seattle and it seemed like they ran a lot of outside zone or like inside zone with him. Like It was, it was a lot of zone running with him. So um, I think Oakland's tried to do it this year, but I, just their offensive line is really not kind of equipped to do that. They're more of a, a mashing kind of offensive line. But it's uh, it, it's definitely interesting because uh, it adds that new element to the, the run game to where they have the dynamic guy that has the power and he can also break tackles. Like There's been a lot of times this year where I've looked at LeGarrette Blount and I see him, like it looks like he should get a couple more yards and he just goes down because they get him at the ankles or he just doesn't have that explosion to break through a hole. That that doesn't seem to be the case with Jay Ajayi. That seems like a guy that if he gets that hole, he's gone. And uh, I know a lot of people talked about him uh, being a home run threat and looking for that home run ball. It, it's interesting because looking at his carries and what I've watched so far, I'm interested to see if he's a guy that absolutely has to have volume. Is he a guy that can make an impact with 10 to 15 carries, or is he a guy that needs that 20 to 25 to absolutely put his stamp on the game? No, you're asking all the right questions for sure. Firstly, talking about the outside zone sort of stuff, that's you know the key right there is the fact that, yeah, Ajayi adds a dimension to the zone game of Philadelphia and, and, and zone style of running is that on which the West Coast offense is usually predicated. Now, now Doug Peterson has done a wonderful job working, you know, man concepts, power blocking concepts into his running game. And they've been trying to facilitate some zone production outside and inside zone. LeGarrette Blunt, they try to get him on outside zone, which is, you know, that, that, that he has potential there. He just lacks the explosiveness. Maybe he had it five years ago, but now he, he doesn't have it. It's too easy for him to get caught up by backside pursuit he can't really hit that narrow crease quickly enough and then Wendell Smallwood as, as we alluded to the vision just kind of isn't there uh you know for these outside inside zone concepts he struggles to read the flow he just wants to take the backside cut immediately you know Jay Ajayi on the other hand very dangerous zone runner outside and inside zone outside especially will be the one that helps Philadelphia they can build that further into their offense that helps you open up a lot more play action getting the defense moving left and then it's going right or so on and so forth that helps you open up Carson Wentz on on, on designed bootlegs and even designed running plays you know these outside zone concepts but Ajayi really excels there and, and the name of the game you alluded to it is explosiveness he just is out of, out of a cannon you know when he decides that that's my crease that's my sunlight here I go boom, you know, straight sonic boom. It's really, really fun and exciting to watch. 
and you can see how that impacts all levels of his game. You know, he excels at getting into the second level. He he has that nice creator's vision. You know, we talk about trying to hit a home run, and yeah, that can be frustrating. But that's kind of at the polar end, and it's it kind of comes with the territory of when a guy has has what I like to call creator's vision in the sense that he doesn't just see what's blocked and goes and gets it. He understands flow and leverage. He has instincts, and so he can he he can get a ball and right at the beginning of outside zone, he just knows in his head, not even consciously. Those linebackers are too far. I'm taking the backside cut right now, and I'm going to make it up the field. And you see a guy do that with regularity, right? He, creator's instinct, creator's vision. And so when he when he blends that vision with the explosiveness, the ability to just get up field quick, he's causing problems. He gets into your second level very, very quickly. And he regularly, I would say categorically, finishes forward in the sense that if you hit him at the, a six-yard gain, it's an eight-yard gain. If you hit him at an eight-yard gain, it's a 10-yard gain. He is going to pick up yardage while you're trying to tackle him because he's just a wrecking ball, right? He's a straight hammer, and that's so much fun to watch. I was excited about the Ajayi trade before it happened. When I went back into the tape, I got more pumped. He, he brings just a dynamic level to the to uh, of the running back position that the Eagles don't have. They just have been lacking. You know, they've blocked very well for their running backs over the first half of the season. LeGarrette Blunt has ripped off some great yard, runs in the second level, you know, throwing Desmond King left and right because he's an animal. But Ajayi just brings, you know, that that ability to break open, you know, three-yard run, three runs into five-yard runs, five-yard runs into seven-yard runs, which is so, so, so valuable. The, the big asterisk there, the big if, is exactly that to which you alluded can he do it in limited touches? Does he have to be a high-volume guy? And, and and I dropped on Bleeding Green Nation a couple of days ago a piece saying this is how I would divide up the touches. This is how I would give it to them per on a quarter basis for a giant for Blunt in an effort to get a Jai's train rolling while not cutting into Blunt, who's been playing well and is still the titular starter, right? Both of these guys strike me as those guys who need a couple of reps to kind of get the engine growling. You know, they're they're they're, they're physical runners, so they need to get there in the trenches and exchange a couple hits before they're, like, you know, raring to go. So you really have to be careful with how you give them, them touches. I think, you know, Ajay is going to start. I don't think he'll necessarily play against Denver. I think they'll give him that off and try to give him the, the, the bye week. And I think he'll start off seeing about 15 touches a game, especially early, you know, first quarter, second quarter. And then they'll try to move Blunt more in the in, in the second half, more in the fourth quarter with about 10 touches a game. So Jai will start with about 15 a game. And then he has the ceiling, I think, to get up to yeah 20 touch per game basis here in Philadelphia if he runs really well. Absolutely. And having it back like that impacts the rest of the offense as well. You know, It's going to mitigate the loss of Alshon Jeffrey if they let him walk this year. So it's uh, it's really neat to have a guy like that. Now, um, I heard they had talked about him as a receiver. I haven't really got to watch his, um, I guess, his sets as a receiver or catching out of the backfield, just a couple screenplays. But I was assuming, based on the production that he had in college, he, he has that ability. Like, that's, <laughs> I mean, if you, had, I think he had like 50 catches in one year or something like that. Like, that's, that's definitely, that's like high quality NFL work for any halfback. Like, if you're catching 50 passes. Now, there are some, like, Matt Forte used to be a, uh, a check down god for the most. I think there was one year where he had like a hundred catches or something like that, and uh, even shady at times. Like when he was here with Vic, uh, I think he had like eighty two catches or something like that, or seventy eight catches. Whenever uh, that twenty ten year, so that's um, that's and that's top of the line production from uh, receiving halfback. So if you can get fifty catches like that, that's really good to me. I, I think it's something they can work with, and I think it allows them to run out of the shotgun more. And I it, I really do think it's going to help with the play-action game even more, which has already been lethal this year. You know, I talk about Blunt, any, any, and I talk about wasted carries. Any run that has LeGarrette Blunt moving horizontally before he gets to the line of scrimmage is uh, pretty much always blown up. Now, <laughs> now, like like you said, you know, with Ajay Ajayi, you don't have that issue. He can get horizontally, then he can get vertically. And he doesn't dance. Like, if he's getting hit, he's getting upfield. Like, he's not going to – you're not going to lose yardage with him like you would with a, a guy like Shady. So that's uh, – to, to me, that that's really what this comes down to is just how he's going to really bring uh, bring great impact to this offense with, uh, with his skill set by providing kind of all-in-one with what the Eagles have. Like, if he can catch the ball, then that helps mitigate Smallwood, who I think is going to be the uh, odd man out just because of – you know, Blunt, I, he's going to be your late, he's going to be your fourth quarter guy that's going to help close it out when teams are trying to arm tackle and they just get tired. Then you have Clement, who's just been excellent special teams. Kenyon Barner also is a special teams guy, so 
that that leaves Smallwood as the odd guy out for me. But that, that's really all I have on the Ajayi thing. I, I think it's going to add a dimension to this offense, and this is one of those things that if he buys in and you can implement him right and it's success, you know, I don't see how anybody stops them on the road to Minnesota. <laughs> That's uh, that's going to be the new thing. It's going to be hashtag road to Minnesota. <laughs> now, I know it's only halfway through the year, but I'm pumped for it. I like it, man. But um, I want to move on to previewing the Broncos game. You know, the offense, they have weapons out there, but from what I understand, they, uh, they don't go down the field for multiple reasons. First off, the quarterbacks that they've been deploying, which has been Trevor Simeon so far this year, doesn't really have the ability to go down the field and hit on those big plays. And I've... Emmanuel Sanders has been out, but they, they haven't really went to Demarius Thomas a lot. Uh, they, From what I understand, they also use a lot of 13 personnel, which present, presents issues all in itself. And uh, they just kind of relied on the running game more than anything. So that's And that's going to be an issue against Philadelphia, who I believe is still allowing the fewest yards for, to running backs per game. So uh, I think I think that's ultimately a, a good thing for them, and then they get to face Brock Osweiler this weekend. So that's like the cherry on top. You get <laughs> you get to face Brock Osweiler. The offensive line hasn't been too good for them either, and that dates back to last year. They had a lot of struggles there, and I think it's one thing that kind of derailed their uh, ability to get to the playoffs. That and their issues at corner at quarterback, but the defense is is still nasty. You know, they, uh, the pass rush is ridiculous. I know Mike has been uh, talking a lot about Shaquille Barrett, I, I think is his name, and how good he's yep. been uh, opposite of Vaughn Miller. Uh, linebackers are still good. Cornerbacks, I, I think, keep to and Chris Harris is probably the best combo you'll get in the NFL right now. It may be A.J. Bouye and uh, Jalen Ramsey down in Jacksonville, yeah. but it's, uh, that, that, <laughs> it's, it's a tough defense to throw against. But from what I do understand, they try to match up safeties on Zach Ertz, and so far this year that that's not worked for teams. I know that Arizona tried to match Tyvon Branch against him. Um, the Redskins tried to match DJ Swearinger against him, and it's it's not been good for teams when they tried to do that. Just because he's he's become he's become a, a physical route runner. He knows when to get open, and he's. Um, he, he's a couple of times when he's breaking off the stem of that route, Zach Ertz. I've seen a couple of push offs. Like he, he knows how to separate from guys and kind of get away with it and sell it. You know, a little bit more than what Gronk does. So I, the defense to me, I, that's going to be an issue. That we talked about those twists and those stunts that they run, but you know, there's not really anything on this offense that scares me. I agree, one hundred percent. And I, the the reason you know I talked about this on Locked On Eagles. The reason I'm a little bit concerned. Uh, you know, this is a game that worries me is the Eagles have, you know, played straight weeks. You know, they're coming into the bye week. So this is the most tired, you know, one of the, the most tired they've been all season, at least so far. And this is one of the most tired they'll be. You know, they don't have that bye week. A little bit coming in banged up. With Brock Osweiler, you don't necessarily have a tape on how exactly that offense is going to be deployed. There will be new, you know, focuses at least. You know, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say new concepts. There'll be a couple. But, you know, the offense will just be ran differently. You know, the, there's different strengths to Brock Osweiler of this game. Like, he has a much longer arm than, than Simeon has. And so you might see some of those deep pushes that you didn't see when, when Trevor was the quarterback there. And so you've got to kind of riddle that out as the game goes on and, and figure out how to do that. And then, you know, you always got to worry when an elite unit comes into town. Right. Because this this Broncos defense is an elite unit. And if they if they get going, you know, if, if they can generate the early pressure that San Francisco did, it's going to be much harder to stop them than it was to stop San Francisco because they're going to, you know, get excited. And, and they know that they can sustain that for four quarters. They've done it before. Right. And then they they have better athletes. And so if they when they mailed that with the creativity and this is a creative defense, uh, you know, when Wade Phillips was the coordinator there, obviously Wade, one of the best defense coordinators ever was. They kind of ran things a little bit more close to the vest, a little more high and tight. You know, this is our alignment. This is how we rush. This is how we'll blitz, so on and so forth. But there wasn't so much of moving pieces around and getting guys on different alignments. Now with Vance Joseph, the head coach there, uh, who's a defensive mind, you know, they've moved Vaughn Miller off of his spot a little bit more than I think they have in the past. They're more willing to put him in the A-gap, get him over a guard, you know, kind of get more edge rushers in, in, in like NASCAR-esque packages on the field simply to, to get the matchups that they want, which is something that Jim Schwartz is doing as well in Philadelphia with like Brandon Graham and Fletcher Cox get, you know, by alignment, getting the rushers that he wants on the blockers that he wants. Right. And so I think that, you know, the Eagles have to ensure that they can generate offense early. Remember, this is the the best first quarter scoring team in the NFL in Philadelphia. They lead the league in scoring in the first quarter. Uh, a lot of that has to go, you know, credit to Doug Peterson. 
who, you know, excellent play scripter, knows how to attack an off a defense right away. And so the hope is that Philadelphia, if they can jump out to that quick lead and you kind of take the teeth out of the Broncos running game, uh, then then you have the ability to control this football game at home, right? But in the event that this offense sputters against the defense early, which we saw them do against the Niners, if they sputter against this defense early, well, now you're at a point where the the longer this becomes a coin flip game, longer this becomes, like I was kind of alluding to earlier, a slugfest with, with, uh, with field goals and just kind of nobody jumping out to a, a, a two-possession lead, then this, 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 you got to be worried about this game against Denver. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's interesting what you said, because uh, they do still lead the league in first quarter scoring, but the last three games, they've not been very good at first quarter scoring. Like the Panthers, they had three points up until before the halftime. The, the Redskins, they had three points up until before <laughs> halftime, whenever they exploded for two touchdowns beforehand. And then, um, they, this, this last week again, you know, San Francisco, they had three point. No, well, they had nine points up uh, right before halftime. Like it, it was like mid second quarter. So it, it's to me, that's it, it, kind of encouraging because it just means that you know, just because you start off fast doesn't mean you're limited to that. It shows that they can make adjustments in the game. You know, especially as it starts to play out sooner, they can get those points and they can capitalize on opportunities. Like I've heard a lot of people talk about the. Uh, you know, the, the Panthers game about how well they had short fields to score. Here's my question to them. When did good teams not take advantage of that? I mean, if Tom Brady gets the ball inside the 20, what do you expect from them? They're, they're going to score. That's it's what good teams do. So when people try to use that, to, I understand what they're trying to say, but, you know, you've got to capitalize on opportunity. That's what good teams do. It's what good quarterbacks do. It's what good offenses do. So I, I don't see – that's just a kind of like a, a false knock on me. I mean, a false knock to me on the people that, you know, just say that because it's you, you've got you've got to capitalize on that, and, we, and we've been so used to here in Philadelphia teams that can't score in the offense, uh, can't score in the red zone. Like Chip Kelly, he was really bad for it. Andy Reid's teams during later in his tenure, they had trouble scoring in the red zone. So to me, it, it's not it, it's just crazy to me. But uh, that, that's that's really all I have for that. And it's um, you talked about the game planning and how it's a uh, Scripting is a big part of the West Coast offense and kind of offenses in general now. So it, to me, it's really a good adjustment that they can make these in-game later adjustments. And you actually talked about some of these things whenever uh, you wrote that article for Bleeding Green Nation about Doug Peterson and his coach of the year candidacy. And um, I, I think it's really legit. That was a good article. And he's he's really making his stake and making his claim at that. Yeah, absolutely. I um. You know, it's not a popular opinion, but I'm perfectly fine with saying that I think Doug is a stronger coach of the year candidate than Carson is an MVP candidate. Not to take away from Carson's MVP candidacy, which he's putting up good numbers, he's playing good football, he's, he's leading his team, they've only got one loss, best record in the NFL in his second year. That's all awesome. But, uh, you know, when I watch, you know, I think that too much of Carson's development is because of what Peterson did in the sense that. You know, obviously Carson, you know, working with quarterback uh, mechanic coaches and, and improving over the offseason, you know, bringing up the all the wide receivers to hang out together and to get offseason work in. Fantastic. It's all wonderful. I don't want to reduce from that. But, you know, from a guy who loves X's and O's, what Doug Peterson has done offensively from year one to year two to take an offense that that, you know, just barely kind of was enough that Carson could do it, right? Just just was was at the, the limits of his ability as, as a first-year quarterback coming out of FCS. The way that he's grown that system to expand with Carson's skill set, the way that he has facilitated Carson's growth by asking him to do new and different things when it comes to making you know full-field reads, when it comes to working levels concepts down the field, when it comes to sprinkling in no-huddle work, right? All the and acquiring the weapons as well, certainly. But just the way that that Doug Peterson has found his his spot, has found his rhythm as a play caller and especially as a play designer with the tools that he has with the quarterback that he has. No no offensive mind is doing it better in the NFL right now. You know, Sean McVay is doing great stuff in Los Angeles. I get that. But right now, McVay is playing his Washington offense, which is a very good offense, in L.A. Doug Peterson's playing an offense that we didn't see from him in Kansas City, and we didn't even see from him in year one, right? This is a new offense doing new things, mixing together concepts. It's really just 
for me, it's wonderful to behold. You add in the fact that he's, you know, getting resurgent production out of guys like Nelson Aguilar and Michael Kendricks and Vinny Curry, you know, guys who were kind of written off as busts. You add in the fact that he's been able to retain Deuce Staley and John DeFilippo and Frank Reich and Dave Phipp and Jim Schwartz, all these other people who apparently have better offers potentially elsewhere, right? You, you, you add in all this emotional intelligence sort of stuff. I mean, uh, to me, he's a clear favorite. I love Doug, man. He's awesome. Absolutely, that's the one thing that we've been talking about is just how good of a play designer he is. Like, he just schemes receivers open really well, and it, it's it's really all worked and it's all come together. And as far as the MVP candidacy goes, you know, I kind of agree with that. And I, to me, Tom Brady is the MVP for this reason that that just that Patriots defense has been really bad. <laughs> I think they're like ranked thirty second in the league or something like that. To the fact that they're six and two, and still winning games. That, that kind of says a lot to me. Of course, I, I'm of the mindset that Bill Belichick should probably be coach of the year every year, but he's right. Yeah, yeah, just doesn't get it because of uh, you know they don't want to do it because greatness kind of becomes stale at a certain point whenever you give it to him repeatedly, time after time. So to me, it, it probably should be Bill Belichick every year. But and, and that's probably the same reason that Brady might not win it this year. Especially if the Eagles finish out something like uh, fourteen and two or thirteen and three, I think it's going to be harder for the for the voters to take it away from Carson Wentz at that point, just because um, team record. But I, I think there's going to be a dip in his statistical uh, output just because of you know bringing in Jay Ajayi and things like that. Like I think it's just ultimately he'll come down to earth. Like he he'll probably still break thirty touchdown passes, which I'm rooting for. But I don't think he gets up into the high 30s, like, you know, 36, 37, 38, like what Matt Ryan had last year. I think that, you know, 33, maybe, I think 34 is probably the ceiling for the touchdown passes that he throws. But uh, unless Dallas, like, I think Dallas is the wild card there. Like, there's the potential for him to put up four touchdowns against Dallas again. I just think that defense is so bad and, you know, coming off a bye going in there. So, they're, well, that in the Raiders game. So, <laughs> well, we'll have to temper expectations as we go. But there, there are some you know, defenses that are going to be uh, lollipops as far as it goes for uh, the past defense. So, really, that's all I have. Is there anything else that you could think of that we missed that you want to add? Um, no, nothing off the top of my head. I'm looking forward to this bye week, man. I think that you know. Sidney Jones is going to start to be a conversation coming into that and, uh, you know, figuring out whether or not he's, uh, you know, he's going to be coming back for the Eagles, whether or not they feel like they need to rush him back. So that's a fun storyline to watch. Besides that, I think the Eagles will definitely add uh, a linebacker as well. That the, that Joe Walker tape wasn't too pretty. Uh, so I think they might try to add a veteran and get him some more snaps as well. But that's more bye week narratives. This Denver is just a game that you, you got to win. This would be, I think this is an easy easier game to lose than most people think. Simply with that defensive narrative, with the fact that the Eagles haven't had the bye yet, this is you know the last in their long stretch. But you know, come away with this, going to the bye eight and one, feel great. That's the job this Sunday. Absolutely, and once again, you can follow Ben on Twitter. He is at Benjamin Solak. You can find his work on BleedingGreenNation.com and NDT Scouting. And he also make sure to like, rate, and subscribe to his podcast, The Birds Breakdown, which he co-hosts with Michael Kiss. We'll have to get Mike on one day. But uh, make sure to also like, subscribe, and rate and review this podcast as well, Birds Breakdown. All those reviews go a long way. Give us a lot of good feedback. Let us know what we need to do differently. Once again, I'm at TJackRH on Twitter. Tyler Jackson, I'm your host. We will be back next week, and uh, hopefully Johnny will be back with us. So once again, Ben, thank you for joining us. Fly Eagles Fly. for it.